Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is the best sports bar in Navy Yard, located just across the street from Nationals Park. Also a great place to check out if you're headed to Audi Field. Make sure to check out their self-pour beer wall and unlimited TVs. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Just barely gets it off and a swing and a line drive into left center field, a base hit. Abram scores. Thomas held up, now around third coming in to score. The Nationals still have the 5-0 lead. Now the pitch swung on, hit in the air to deep left. This is way back and going, going and gone. Goodbye. Back-to-back home runs for the Cardinals. And the Cardinals have taken the lead with four runs home here in the top of the fifth and nobody out. It's now St. Louis 6 and Washington 5. 3-1. Swing a line drive to center field. Robles playing deep. It's going to dunk in front of him for a base hit. Scoring from third is Newbar. Arenado scoots over to third. And it's 8-5 Cardinals. Wilson Contreras picks up his 29th RBI of the season. And welcome to Nats Chat for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. You know, Mark is a big Phoenix Suns fan. I'm a big Wizards fan. If you, during this installment of the podcast, notice, like, an underlying tension between us, it's because my Wizards are trading Bradley Beal to his sons for pennies on the dollar, and because the Sun of Bradley Beal's agent is the CEO of the Suns in a major conflict of interest. Don't get me started on that. Although that might make for a more pleasant conversation than what happened with the Nats on Monday. The Nats blew a 5-0 third inning lead in what ended up being an 8-6 loss to the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park in game one of a three-game series. The Nats now have lost 15 of their last 19 games. The Nats now are 27-44. and 44. That is the worst record in the National League. Coming up later in the show, a special treat, our own Tim Shover's conversation with Bob Kendrick. He is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Bob's going to tell us about an all-time great player, Oscar Charleston, who actually at one point played for the Homestead Grays. But yeah, Mark, big time blown lead by the Nats, a rough outing for Josiah Gray, and that's offense that uh, largely went silent after a great first two innings, and yet another Nats loss in a pretty bad stretch right now. Well, if Bradley Beal helps lead the Suns to their first ever NBA title, I think it's all worth it, and I don't care about conflicts of interest or any of that, but I guess that's not what you really want to talk about here today, no? Well, we can talk about it. I mean, it might be more fun than this Nats conversation, but I don't think that that's what people <laughs> tuned into. All right. I guess we'll talk Nats. 
you know, this is frustrating now. We're in a stretch here where just it doesn't seem like anything can go the right way for them. And on the days when they pitch, they don't hit and they lose a game four to two. On a day when they bust out of the gates, five run lead, Josiah Gray on the mound, what more could you ask for? No, they still find a way to lose that game. There is nothing going right for this team right now. There may be some individuals doing good things. There may be moments within games that are encouraging, but it's hard to look at the end result and not be incredibly frustrated. Not that you and I and everybody else didn't understand. This is still a rebuilding team and there were going to be ups and downs. And I don't think we're shocked by that, but it's just disappointing because it was only a couple of weeks ago. It felt like they had actually turned a corner where we were talking about they're winning games about half the time and the games they lose are very competitive and they just need to find a way to finish them off. Well, and now in this stretch, it feels hopeless very often for them, no matter the opponent, whether it's the Dodgers or Braves, the good teams they're playing, or in this case, the Cardinals, who are one of the worst teams in the National League, believe it or not, this year. So I think that's what makes it frustrating more than anything is that what happened to all that goodwill, all those positive direction that it seemed like these guys were going just a few weeks ago, it feels like it's all gone here in the span of you know two and a half weeks. Well, we preached at the start of the season to, as best you can, divorce yourself from the outcomes of these games because the rebuild, certainly in this season, is far more about individuals doing well, potential building blocks doing well, than the rebuild is about wins and losses. But I think one of the really tough things about this stretch for the Nats right now is that a decent number of the building blocks are not doing so well. C.J. Abrams had a good day on Monday, so that was good, but he overall is not doing well. Kbert Ruiz overall is not doing well. And we have the likes of Josiah Gray and Mackenzie Gore now in these kind of weird places of those guys are not doing as well as they were earlier this season, kind of teetering a little bit. And, you know, with Josiah Gray lately, and we've been talking about this, the results have maybe been okay, but the process has been troublesome. And on Monday, what you got was a game in which the results were not okay. Josiah Gray had maybe his worst outing of the season in this game on Monday. And understand who the Nats were playing on Monday. The St. Louis Cardinals are one of the worst teams in baseball this season, one of the biggest disappointments in baseball this season. So Josiah Gray on Monday, six runs in five innings. He gave up nine hits, two home runs, a triple, a double, and five singles. Now, he did have six strikeouts versus one walk. He did throw a pretty good number of strikes, 102 pitches, 64 strikes versus 38 balls. So actually, the peripherals for Gray on Monday weren't so bad, but the giving up of nine hits was bad, and the giving up of six runs in five innings was bad. Top of the third, Gray allowed two runs. He gave up a leadoff single by Paul DeYoung to center field, gave up a stand-up RBI triple by Tommy Edmond to deep center field to cut the Nats' lead to 5-1. Center fielder Victor Robles off initially coming in on the ball, ended up seeing the ball bounce off his uh, extended backhanded glove while leaping on the warning track. And then Gray gave up a one-out RBI single by Paul Goldschmidt to center field to cut the Nats' lead to 5-2. Top of the fifth, Gray allowed four runs, all of which came over four hits to begin the inning. Three of the hits Extra base hits, leadoff double by Paul DeYoung down the right field line. Gray gave up a single by Tommy Edmond to right field, despite him having been down at 1.02. And then came back-to-back home runs. Gray gave up a game-tying three-run homer by Brendan Donovan to right field to tie the game at five. And Gray gave up a solo homer by Paul Goldschmidt to left field for a 6-5 Cardinals lead. This was a rough one for Josiah Gray. 
And it's because primarily the old bugaboo for him, the home run, has come back. Remember, all throughout the first two months of the season, we said, hey, he's done a great job of flipping the home run totals from last year. Can he keep that up? Or is this going to become a problem again come summertime? And you know what? It has become a problem again. Six homers allowed now in his last four starts. And these were costly home runs. There are solo shots every once in a while that you say, okay, you live with it. These were bad home runs at a bad moment in a game that was right there for them, that they were in control of, and Josiah Gray gave it right back to the Cardinals. The home run to Donovan on a fastball in, and then seconds later, the home run to Goldschmidt on a hanging curveball. And you know that part of it's troubling because we are seeing a return of really what was his biggest issue last year. The other part of this that's troubling to me is the first two innings, he cruises through them, 30 pitches, 19 strikes. They give him a five-run lead. What do you want to do after that? Throw strikes, get quick outs, maintain that lead. And he said that's what he was trying to do. Problem is he did not do a good job of it. Over his final three innings, he threw 72 pitches. That is astronomical. And while there was only the one walk, like you said, there were a lot of deep counts. He was falling behind, getting into bad counts, and having to put pitches over the plate that were hit quite hard in a lot of those cases. So I think that's the discouraging part. You know, last week in Houston, he gave up a couple of homers. He still managed to get through seven innings. And we said, hey, you know what? That's actually a pretty good sign from him. No walks, seven innings, kept the pitch count down. That's where you say the process, you're excited about the process, even if the results were not great. In this one, I'm troubled by the process as well. If you had told me after two innings that one of these two starters was going to reach the seventh inning, I would have said it's Josiah Gray no matter what. And no, instead it was Jack Flaherty who reached the seventh inning and Josiah Gray was knocked out after the fifth, already over 100 pitches. Working backwards, here now are your final lines for Josiah Gray over his last handful of starts. And, you know, final lines aren't always all telling, but I think in this case they are. Six runs in five innings on Monday, four runs in seven innings in the previous start, one run in five innings in the start prior to that, although he in that start issued four walks and issued a staggering four wild pitches, four runs in five in the third innings in the start prior to that, two runs in four innings in the start prior to that, one run in five innings in the start prior to that, but he in that game issued a staggering six walks. There's been a lot to sort of harp on lately with these Josiah Gray outings. Either the outing isn't good from a run prevention standpoint, or the outing maybe is all right from a run prevention standpoint, but you see things that are troublesome. You know, six walks, four walks, and four wild pitches. Just things that don't sit right. So, you know, he's a young pitcher. It's not linear in terms of the progress, but here's something to consider. Josiah Gray this season, first 10 starts, ERA at 265. Josiah Gray now, over his last five starts, ERA of 581. You know, for the last month or so, he's kind of pitching the way that he was pitching these last two seasons. And that's obviously not what you want. And, you know, I hate to bring this up, but I remember mentioning this earlier in the season. You know, Eric Fetty, the last two seasons, over his first nine or ten starts, was good. And then things fell off. Well, here you have now Josiah Gray this season. First ten starts, good. ERA 265. Now, since then, falling off. I'm not saying he's Fetty. I'm not saying this is going to continue. I sure hope that it doesn't. But, you know, you do wonder about that. Like, it's one thing to pitch well over, say, 10 starts in a season. It's a much different story to do so over, you know, 25, 30 starts in a season. And that's why these next few starts prior to the All-Star break, I think, are huge 
for him. Can he flip the switch back? Can he rediscover what he was doing well earlier in the season? Or does he let this compound on itself? And all of a sudden he goes into the all-star break with an ERA over four. And we have a very different feeling about how the season is going for him. I think it's a good test for him. We've seen him tinker with a lot of different kinds of pitches. He threw six different types of pitches in the first two innings alone in this game and was using them throughout. He's got to figure out what works for him, what doesn't work for him, how to be in the strike zone like he has been the last two starts, but effectively in the strike zone. It's not good enough just to put the ball over the plate, especially when you get hit as hard as he did in this one. So there is some real stuff for him to work on. And I think this is an important test for him, not just as it pertains to trying to win a few games or lower the ERA before the All-Star break, but to really show that he can make adjustments, see what he's doing wrong, improve upon that, and leave a much better taste in everyone's mouths as they head out for the All-Star break in three weeks. Right before the end of the Nats season in late September, Bruce Springsteen is coming to Nationals Park. If you're trying to find tickets to the concert, check out the Game Time app. Buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Well, we all know what summer means. Uh, summer means baseball. Summer usually means more home runs in baseball, but uh, summer also means heat and humidity and your energy bills being rather high due to your air conditioning working extra innings. It is time to beat the heat with Window Nation's summer sale. Save thousands of dollars with an outstanding offer. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years plus Window Nation will give you two free windows for every two windows that you buy. All you have to do is call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Increase the value of your home by up to $12,000. Hey, make your neighbors jealous. Who doesn't want to do that? Again, the Window Nation Summer Sale. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years plus Two free windows for every two windows that you buy. And this goes for any style of window from Window Nation. 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Hey, Nats Chat listeners. Here to tell you about Bird Dogs, the world's most comfortable pants. Bird Dogs make you look good. Bird Dog shorts also do the exact same thing as Lululemon, but fit way better. They also fit better than regular shorts that are made of a stiff, restricting cotton. Go to birddogs.com slash pool and enter promo code pool, that's spelled P-O-O-L, for a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com slash pool for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. We promise you. 
18 out of 66 for the year. Four doubles, two homers, 11 knocked in. A swing and a line drive into right center field, a base hit. This is going to score both runners. Candelario and easily from third. Here comes Manessis in to score on a line drive base hit into right center field. Play back by Lars Lupar. Corey Dickerson with a two-run single, and the Nationals put the crooked number up here at the bottom of the first inning. It's Washington three and St. Louis nothing. So, Josiah Gray on Monday was not good. Also not good on Monday was the Nats offense off a great start to the game. The Nats over the first two innings scored five runs. The Nats over the final seven innings scored a mere one run. The Nats for the game totaled 11 hits. Eight of the 11 hits came over the first two innings. We have seen this before. The Nats can actually get off to really good starts to games, but then the offense can go silent. And in a lot of ways, that's what happened on Monday. But I think what sticks with me the most from this game, from a Nationals offensive perspective, is the Nats running themselves into multiple outs. And, you know, when this was happening, the Nats were, for the most part, leading. And so you say to yourself, okay, I mean, that's not the end of the world. But boy, I sure hope that the uh, running into outs doesn't come back to bite the Nats. And sure enough, it did. So Corey Dickerson, he in this game, one for four with a good two-run single. Dickerson in an Nats three-run first, a two-out first pitch, two-run single to right center field for a 3 nothing Nats lead, although he then was thrown out in his attempt to advance to third base on Dominic Smith's two-out single to right field for the third out. Luis Garcia, so he had an interesting game on Monday, one for three with four RBI. He had a two-run single, an RBI sack fly, and an RBI ground out. Kind of an odd composition for a four-RBI performance. Garcia in an adds two-run second, a one-out two-run opposite field single to left center on a one-two pitch for a 5 nothing lead. But he then was thrown out at second base in his attempt to stretch the single into a double. This was kind of interesting. He overslid the bag in sliding around the initial attempted tag by the Cardinals second baseman, Nolan Gorman. Garcia initially was ruled safe, but the Cardinals successfully challenged the play. Garcia heading for second, the throw there. He gets around the tag, and he's safe. I I think he's probably going to be called out here. Did his hand come off to celebrate? The call is overturned. The runner's out. And of course, if the Nats in a game made multiple outs on the base pass, one of those outs surely had to have been made by Victor Robles. And yes, that did happen on Monday. Uh, Robles in this game, one for four with a double. Bottom of the fourth, a one-out first pitch double on a chopper down the left field line. But he then got doubled up at second base on a one-out first pitch, 3-6 line-out double play off the bat of C.J. Abrams. The Robles out was a little tricky because Abrams scorched that ball. But still, that's not an out that you need to be making, and yet that out was made. You had the Dickerson out, the Garcia out, What'd you make of what happened on the base pass with the Nets? So in the moment, I did think to myself, boy, that might come back to haunt them. They had a chance to knock Flaherty out, to deliver the knockout blow early. They were all over him. At one point there, they were eight for 10 offensively against Flaherty, and yet they had made four outs. One of them was a sack fly, and then two of them were on the bases. So they really only get hit into one legitimate out at that point. So there was an opportunity. Yes, the five runs are great, but there was an opportunity to really deliver the knockout blow. And so I didn't love that part of it. Now, I asked Davey about this after the game, and he actually said that those two in particular don't bother him a lot. I don't mind those at all. Because that was a case of being aggressive and trying to take an extra base on hits and things like that. So he didn't really take issue 
with those. And the Garcia one, like you said, he actually did a great job avoiding the tag. If he had just held on to the base, it would have been fine in the end, and we'd be complimenting him for a great slide. Dickerson, I didn't love just because this is a guy who is not a speedster, <laughs> and he dealt with a, an injured calf. And so I don't know that you're trying to force the issue with uh, Corey Dickerson to try to take an extra base. And again, that ended an inning that could have kept going and produced more runs. And the one that Davey had more of a problem with was the Robles one in the fourth, because he said, line drive, if you're a base runner, you just have to freeze. Don't even assume that the ball is going to get through. Now, 109 miles an hour off the bat of C.J. Abrams. So I'm not as upset. That felt like one of those, man, what are you going to do? He scorched that ball. Robles is thinking, I'm going to score on it. You know, it happens, that kind of thing. But I did think, especially the first two, that there was a chance it was going to come back to haunt them. And the job that Flaherty did after that, I just talked about with Josiah Gray going from 30 pitches in two innings to 102 in five. Jack Flaherty's at 46 pitches after the second inning. He made it all the way into the seventh, and he never even reached the 100 pitch mark. What does that tell you? That's remarkable. We need to stop with any outs being made on the base paths by Corey Dickerson. Remember, he got thrown out on an attempted steal a few games ago in what may have been a botched hit and run. And then in this game on Monday, he gets thrown out trying to advance to third base. Corey Dickerson is a big, bulky guy, not known for his speed. Like you said, he had the calf injury earlier this season. Like, you know, enough with Corey Dickerson making any outs on the base pass here. But the Nats, to their credit, did score five runs over the first two innings. I mean, you ultimately, in a game, score six runs. You really should win the game, no matter when you score those runs. Lane Thomas, another good game for this guy. Two for four with two doubles, a hit by pitch, and a stolen base. He and the Nats three run first, had a leadoff full count double to left field. He and the Nats two run second, had a one out double off the left field warning track. And Thomas and the Nats one run seventh, a one out hit by pitch and a steal of second base on an uncontested double steal by the Nats. So in every run scoring inning for the Nats on Monday, Lane Thomas was a factor. His team leading OPS for this season now is at 834. His slugging percentage for this season now is up to 493. As again, he is flirting. He is winking at a slugging percentage of 500. You know, it's funny, Kevin Franzen on the Mass and telecast of the game talked up Lane Thomas as an all-star candidate. We certainly have had that conversation on this podcast, but I feel like the conversation is changing. A few weeks ago, it felt like, okay, Josiah Gray or Mackenzie Gore, the Nats are going to have one all-star, probably would be one of those two guys. And then Lane Thomas was kind of like on the periphery. I think the conversation is changing with what's happening with Gore and Gray and what's happening with Thomas. I think right now you can make a very compelling case that Lane Thomas is the most deserving player on the Nats to be an all-star this season. Yeah, if the vote was today, I think I would give it to Lane, just based on who was the most deserving, who's been their best player on the team. I think it's Lane. Now, as we discussed, outfield can be a tough place to crack. There's going to be a lot of competition there. And so that's why maybe Jamer Candelario, with less competition at third base, could force his way in. But I felt like Josiah Gray was going to need to keep himself in the top 10 in ERA in the league. He's not there anymore after this one. He's going to need a nice turnaround the next few starts to get there. Mackenzie Gore would need a couple of big games, I think, as well. High strikeout total games, lower the ERA a little bit to put himself in the conversation. There was a point we talked, maybe Hunter Harvey or even Kyle Finnegan. It's not happening with them with enough consistency. And by the way, those guys haven't pitched in a while either. Finnegan came into this game, but they were trailing and Harvey hasn't pitched since Houston. So yeah, right now, if I had to pick somebody, I do think Lane Thomas is most deserving. And we keep saying it, but it's just nice to see this continue. 
you never really know, can he sustain it or not? Each passing day that he does it is a good sign that this is who he can actually be. I really liked that. And that first inning, leadoff double, and it was a hustle double that he forced his way there. He takes third on a wild pitch, and he put himself in position to score on a sack flight. It's exactly what you want from a leadoff hitter. Another double in the second. And then we talked about the bad base running. I do want to mention the seventh inning double steal by Abrams and Thomas. Uncontested double steal by the Nationals, not against the Nationals. How many times have we talked about them giving up uncontested stolen bases? Here's the pitch where the runner's going. It's low and outside and no throw. It's a double steal. So how about that? The Nationals, who are not normally aggressive on the base pass, pull off the double steal on the first pitch from Cabrera. This was a great job by the two of them to read that, get the good jump in a game that was still competitive, and there was a chance there for them to put something together in the seventh and flip that game back in their favor. It wasn't those two guys' fault. They just couldn't drive them in after that. But that was a nice moment to see them be aggressive and smartly aggressive to take those two bases with the Cardinals completely unaware of what was going on. Was very good to see that. Lane Thomas now this season in the first innings of games, I love tracking this, he has an OPS of 1,227. The guy has been otherworldly in first inning plate appearances this season. Batting average 457 on base percentage of 510, slugging percentage of 717. He has been one of the best first inning batters in baseball this season. And I do think that there's a good amount of value in that. Obviously, you want to protect leads, like 5 nothing leads after two innings, but uh, getting those leads uh, is good, and Lane Thomas helps you do that. Good to see Jamer Candelario be back in the lineup with the Nats on Monday. He was out there as the Nats' starting third baseman and number three batter, returned from a one-game absence caused by a right thumb bone bruise. He went two for four with a couple of singles. And nice to see C.J. Abrams, who, as we have discussed, has been reeling as a batter, actually get on base three times on Monday. Uh, He went two for three with two singles, a walk, and a stolen base. He had a good plate appearance in particular in the two-run second, a one-out single to right field despite having been down in the count at 1.12. He had that aforementioned uh, 109-mile-per-hour liner. I thought it was notable, Davey, during his post-game session with you guys uh, singling out Abrams for having a good day. Man, you talk about someone needing to have a decent offensive day. Abrams certainly needed one. Yeah, he did. And it was good to see him get on base in a variety of different ways. You said a good quality at bat in the second, drawing a walk, something he doesn't do a whole lot in the seventh, beating out an infield single in the ninth, and then the best contact he had all day. And it's too bad that he wasn't rewarded for it. But if he keeps doing that, he will hit pay dirt more often than not. You're not going to hit a ball 109 miles an hour that often into outs. So whatever he did in that bat, stick with it. A good day for him. And you're right, he needed one like that. Nats bullpen on Monday. Four Nats relievers combined to allow two runs in four innings. Jordan Weems, another impressive outing. He's had himself a good last few days here. A perfect top of the sixth with two strikeouts. Then did come Carl Edwards Jr. He in the top of the seventh allowed two runs on two walks and then two singles for an 8-5 Cardinals lead. I mean, again, the Nats were up 5-0. The Cardinals then scored eight unanswered runs in this game. And specific to Edwards' appearance, the second walk and the two singles all came with two outs. Edwards threw 30 pitches, just 15 strikes versus 15 balls. Then we had Chad Cool, and I was fascinated by this appearance by Chad Cool. So first of all, we're seeing a lot of Chad Cool these days, not so much of Hunter Harvey and Kyle Finnegan, but Cool in this game, a scoreless top of the eighth, despite issuing a walk and a hit by pitch. He threw 17 pitches, six strikes versus 11 balls. That's hard to do. You don't see that often. 
a guy throwing nearly twice as many balls as strikes without giving up a run. So I don't know if we should be impressed by Cool or we should be shaming Cool for what he did, but that was bizarre, the outing that he had. And then, like Mark said, we did see Kyle Finnegan, a uh, Kyle Finnegan sighting, a perfect top of the ninth in just his fifth appearance in a game this month. I mean, we just are not seeing much of Finnegan or Harvey right now, but uh, some things to think about uh, with this Nats bullpen off what went down on Monday. Well, and this was one of those cases, and we've talked about this, they're down two runs in the eighth inning. Game is still potentially there for the taking. And we know that Davey's not going to go to his top relievers, generally speaking, in that kind of spot. But the fact that Harvey and Finnegan both had not pitched since Thursday in Houston made me pause and say, should you just throw them both out there? One for the eighth, one for the ninth, try to keep the deficit where it is, and maybe you've got to come back in you. So instead, he goes to cool, and they got away with it because they didn't score any runs. But like you said, not a real clean inning at all. And I think Dave was probably spooked at the idea of putting him back out there for a second inning after that. So now you do use Finnegan, and he keeps the deficit there, and it still didn't work in the end because they didn't do anything offensively. But Hunter Harvey has not pitched now since Thursday, and I felt like maybe this was the time just to push that button and say, hey, yeah, we're down two runs. Let's try to clamp this thing down and give ourselves the best chance possible. Let's go Harvey in the eighth, Finnegan in the ninth. You know, I get why he doesn't do that. It's not some egregious mistake, anything like that. If they are in a position to win on Tuesday, you want to have him fresh and available. But given the way they've been used or haven't been used here in recent days, I felt like that might have been the time to go ahead and try something like that. You can justify all of Davey Martinez's bullpen deployments lately, right? Like that you can understand what he was thinking each time he put in a specific player into a specific game. But when you take a step back and you say, okay, how come Chad Cool now has pitched so much over these last few days and Hunter Harvey hasn't pitched at all? How come you didn't use Kyle Finnegan at all in the previous series? And then now on Monday, he ends up pitching in, you know, what is almost like pseudo garbage time. The Nats are down. It never really felt like they were going to come back to win this game. And so you throw Finnegan out there for a top of the ninth inning just because he hasn't pitched in a while. Like, that's not the way this is supposed to go. If Finnegan is one of your top two relievers, and, and you know, like we keep saying, there are no guarantees with Finnegan. He's not having a very good season. But if, in fact, you view your bullpen hierarchy as Hunter Harvey 1, Kyle Finnegan 2, it doesn't look so good when Chad Cool and even Jordan Weems, who is pitching well, are pitching so much more than those two guys, Harvey and Finnegan. And so I think that's the conversation that Davey Martinez needs to have with himself do I need to approach this a little differently? Again, understanding that bullpen deployment is tricky. This Nats bullpen overall isn't good. You can second guess everything with the bullpens. Like, it's not supposed to be like this, that Chad Cool pitches as often as he has. Chad Cool is not Tyler Clippard, and yet he has been used like Tyler Clippard, it feels like, over these last few days. Right. And this is, uh, you know, you can't win, you can't lose. There's like no good answer to this one. You can throw those guys, try to keep the game close, maybe have a chance at winning. But then if the next two nights they are in a position to win and then you get to the series finale, you say, well, wait a minute, Finnegan and Harvey are both down tonight because they pitched two in a row. Who's going to close for us? So it's a catch-22. I feel for managers because it's not easy to do this. You're considering both what's happening in the moment, but you're also considering what could happen in the days to come. But you're right. You get to the end of that and you say, why is pitcher X throwing so much more than pitcher Y when pitcher Y is our better guy. Now, it's a reflection of the fact that they're losing these games. If they were in a position to win, 
it would be different. So that you know has to be taken into uh, consideration as part of this. But yeah, we're kind of at a point now where you get to Tuesday night, and I'm guessing Hunter Harvey's pitching no matter what. Whether they're ahead by a bunch, tied, or trailing by a bunch, he needs to pitch now, which is a funny thing to think, given that not that long ago, he couldn't pitch at all because he'd been used so much. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast to NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the show, we'd love to have you on board. Hit up Tim Shover, see what we can do for you. That email address again is NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We have a new website. You can check that out, NatsChatPodcast.com. You can order yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt at that site. Again, NatsChatPodcast.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit TimNewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we send you now to our own Tim Shovers, his conversation with the great Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Hello and welcome to our third annual interview with Bob Kendrick here on the Nats Chat Podcast. Bob is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum that is located in Kansas City, Missouri. And earlier this season, he took in a game at Nationals Park. Bob, thanks so much for coming on again. Did you enjoy your visit to our ballpark here in D.C.? Oh, man, I always do. I had a great time. One of my board members invited me out to watch a game with him and a couple of his friends and had a, a great opportunity to enjoy a game, which I don't get to do too often because usually when I'm at the ballpark, I'm working. And so this was kind of a rare opportunity to actually sit and just watch a game and eat hot dogs and nachos, just like any other fan would get to do. And I certainly enjoyed it. And it just happens to be that series when Baltimore was in town. And so it was a great night at the ballpark. You've joined us here on this podcast every Juneteenth episode so far in our brief history here at Nats Chat. We're in season three in 2021. Join us to discuss Josh Gibson. And last year we spoke about Ray Brown. This year we head to the outfield to shine a spotlight on one of the all-time great baseball players many of you have probably never heard of in Oscar Charleston. Bob, what should our listeners know about the great Oscar Charleston? Well, to take the words of the legendary Buck O'Neill who said without hesitation that Oscar Charleston was the greatest baseball player he had ever seen. That is tremendously high praise. Oscar Charleston is standing in center field here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum on our field of legends. And Buck O'Neill and other Negro Leaguers that I've gotten to meet who saw Charleston play they all say that he was Willie Mays before we ever knew who Willie Mays was. And Buck would go on to say the closest thing to Oscar Charleston would have been Willie Mays. And man, that is frightening because most regard Willie Mays as having been the greatest all-around major leaguer that this game has ever seen. And to think that there might have been a ball player that was even better than Willie Mays is absolutely frightening, but that is what many of the old former Negro League stars would say of the legendary Oscar Charleston. Why hasn't his name stood the test of time in the same way that Josh Gibson's has? Well, 
Gibson was so almost mythical-like in his power. So there are a few names that are transcending in our sport. Satchel Paige, Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson. Most baseball fans have uh, likely heard those names. And Tim, even if you don't know how great they were, you've likely heard those names. But a name like Oscar Charleston surprises people because he is not a household name like the Satchel Pages and the Josh Gibsons and the Cool Papa Bells of the world. But man, he should be. And by all accounts, there was absolutely nothing that Oscar Charleston could not do. He was a five-tool guy, hit for power, hit for average, could feel, could run, could throw. In 1921, he led the Negro Leagues in home runs, triples, stolen bases, batting average, all in the same season. Oh, and I forgot doubles. Yeah, he led in all of those categories in the same season. I mean, as baseball fans, we miss this phenom. And that's the sad reality of what segregation did to our sport. We should have seen all of these great ball players take the field and compete against one another. You know, if you were going to compare Oscar Charleston to a major league contemporary, he had the defensive abilities of Tris Speaker, the tenacity of Ty Cobb. Yeah, he would fight you now. Now, usually Oscar wouldn't start the fight, but Tim, he would finish the fight. Yeah, and the power of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package, and Buck O'Neill says he never saw a center fielder who could go back on a ball the way Charleston could including the great Willie Mae. Yeah, he said he just seemed to have this uncanny instinct for where the ball was coming down right off the crack of the bat. I tell people all the time, you remember the great catch that Willie Mays makes in the World Series, that great running over-the-shoulder basket catch? And honestly, the throw was better than the catch. But because of the magnitude of the moment, that's the World Series, and he literally had to run a country mile. You know, that's going to be a home run in virtually every other ballpark except the polo ground. But all the old-timers say, had that been Oscar Charleston, Tim, he would have been waiting for that ball to come down. (laughs) 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 What you mentioned with Willie Mays, that, you know, when I first learned of his name, that was the thing that really struck me was Willie Mays before Willie Mays because... My father grew up in the 50s. He always said Willie Mays, best player ever. Most people from that generation say that and without argument. So my question to you is, Bob, when you're with some friends and you're sitting around in Kansas City and you start talking about Negro Leagues off air and let's say you get to the conversation of who the best player is in Negro League history, where is Oscar Charleston in that conversation? Is he at the very, very, very short list or is he number one or is it Gibson or is it someone else? You know, you could throw their names in a bag and pull one out and you would not be wrong. When I look at Josh Gibson, for me, Josh Gibson was a five-tool catcher, if there's any such thing. Because Gibson could do everything as well. And he was playing the most challenging defensive position in the sport. And yet he lit everybody up. The center fielder position is that glamour position, however. 
that's the position that everybody seems to gravitate to. You play center field. That's why so many people believe that Mays was better than Henry Aaron. Now, I'm to the contrary because Henry Aaron is my all-time favorite baseball player and my childhood idol. But he played a corner outfield, so it's just assumed that he wasn't as good defensively as Willie Mays was. Hank Aaron was a student of this game, and he knew how to play defense as well as anyone. Oscar Charleston was just such a tremendous talent who could beat you every way in which you could be beaten. You know, he could beat you with his bat, with his arm, with his glove, with his legs. And so he was an extraordinary talent. I still think Gibson is number one in my, you know, for me. But Charleston would likely be number two. Yeah, Charleston was pretty special by all accounts. Charleston, 364 career batting average. I'll say that again, 364 career batting (laughs) average. (laughs) When you look at Charleston's bio and the scorecard, you see a lot of different teams in a lot of different cities, starting with Indianapolis in the you know 1915, and then played all the way with the Philadelphia Stars in 1941. In between a bunch of stops, including with the Homestead Grays, but while they were still in Pennsylvania before they moved down to the Capital Region, is there a reason why he bounced around to so many teams, or is that sort of just how the business worked at the time? Yeah, you know it was pretty common. Only a handful of players that didn't bounce around. You know, you went with the money. You tried to get the best opportunities that you could get. And Oscar Charleston, Tim, in my opinion, was one of the first two superstars of the newly formed Negro National League when it was established here in Kansas City in 1920. Oscar Charleston and the great Wilbur Bullet Rogan, to me, were the two superstars amongst a litany of stars that were part of the new Negro National League. and. In 2020, we put a new headstone on the gravesite of Oscar Charleston because it started there for him with the Indianapolis ABCs. But he was absolutely well-traveled and not only in the Negro Leagues, but our scrapbook, we have his scrapbook and most of the stuff documented in his scrapbook comes from when he was playing in Cuba. And he was a big star in Cuba. As many of these guys went to Spanish-speaking countries and had great careers playing in those countries. Oscar Charleston was no exception. You know, you see these cartoons and they're all in Spanish. And you see the dramatization of Oscar Charleston carrying that big bat, almost a bat the size of something that you might see on the Flintstones, uh, because he was that (laughs) revered while he was playing in Cuba. And so he was indeed well-traveled. But you did. You went with where the money was. And again, he was such an extraordinary talent that a lot of people wanted him to play. And so he goes from the Indianapolis ABCs, goes over briefly to join the team in St. Louis. That's the year in 1921 when he puts up that season where he led the Negro Leagues in home runs, triples, doubles, stolen bases, and batting average. I don't know if we'll ever see that done again. No. (laughs) (laughs) And then he was only one season with St. Louis. He was gone. Just as fast as he came there and put up these almost video game-like numbers, he was out of there. Oscar passed away in October of 1954 at the age of 57 due to what is described as either a heart attack or a stroke. He passed away in Philadelphia. He's now buried today in Indianapolis. But last thing for you, Bob, today, 
to tie this to Jackie Robinson is that Oscar in uh, the mid 40s was briefly hired as the manager of the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. Now, this was before Jackie Robinson joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. Can you educate our listeners as to the backstory of that organization and what that all was right before the sport integrated? Well, Branch Rickey had purported to be creating his own version of a Negro Leagues. Honestly, Tim, I think it was a smokescreen so that he could start to recruit African-American ballplayers without the other major league owners really knowing what he was doing. So Charleston was working for Ricky and he was scouting for Ricky, essentially. And uh, ultimately, that gets us to Kansas City and Jackie being well, plucked away from the Kansas City Monarchs because contrary to popular belief, Branch Ricky did not sign Jackie away from the Kansas City Monarchs. Tim, he took Jackie away from the Kansas City Monarchs. J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Monarchs, never got paid, as my late mother would say, not one red cent for a ball player who was absolutely under contract. But Ricky was very shrewd. And Ricky knew that the Monarchs' owner could not fight back. You know why? Because he was white. J.L. Wilkinson was a white man who made his entire living in black baseball. So you think about this. There is no way that this white man, who, as I said, made his entire living in black baseball, can be the public face of trying to block what every black person in America had been waiting for, for a black man to play in the major leagues. If he does, that fan base, that monarch fan base that had been so loyal to him, they would have turned their backs on him right away. And Ricky knew this. And so he had Wilkie stuck between, as I like to say, that proverbial rock and hard place. And so publicly, Wilkie said all the right things. Privately, man, he was seething, but he wasn't seething because a black man's about to play in the major leagues. This black man that you're about to take away from me, you're going to put me out of business. And he was absolutely right. And so Charleston was doing some of the scouting for Ricky with this Brooklyn Brown Dodger team that really never really existed in any real meaningful way. I do think it was much of a farce and a smokescreen to keep the other owners off of his scent as he was trying to make this calculated move to bring black talent into Major League Baseball. His first choice was Monty Irvin and not Jackie Robinson. But the Newark Eagles owner was a female, was a woman by the name of Effa Manley. And she fought, she fought Ricky. Uh-huh. She scared Ricky off of Monty Irvin. And that's when he turns his sight here to Kansas City because Mrs. Manley threatened to litigate against Ricky. And he knew he couldn't have a public fight with this black woman. And at a time when you already know the owners are going to stand in solidarity to try and block your move anyway. So he backs off of Monty Irvin. And that's when he turns his sight here to Kansas City to one Jackie Roosevelt Robinson. Thank you so much for telling me that, that fact. Our, our <laughs> listeners will really appreciate it. We go inside baseball here in the Nats Chat Podcast, and we just went really inside. We gave you mid-40s business dealings uh, that led to Jackie Robinson. Oh, it, Tim, it's fascinating. I, I tell people all the time, man, you could do a scripted TV series on how we got to Jackie Robinson. It is that fascinating, and it, it's filled with intrigue and mystery, and you don't know who to believe. The owners were posturing everybody. 
So it is absolutely fascinating. And Charleston found himself right in the middle of that working for Ricky. Well, when you go to L.A. to shop it to Hulu and Netflix, I'll happily be there with you in the room if, if, if need be. So, well, Bob, thank you so much. This is great. Thanks for telling us about Oscar Charleston, just one of the all-time great legends in the history of the sport, and more people should know about him. And thank you for uh, for doing your part here today and, of course, with the museum. And cannot wait till the day where I finally get to go to the museum. Well, I'm looking forward to welcoming you here to the museum. And thanks again for giving me a, kind of a platform to talk about heroes like the great Oscar Charleston. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.